Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 26, verses 6 to 30. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him thirty pieces of silver. And from that moment he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when he had sung, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, if you feel like you're not getting your money's worth today, at least over here, because that's the only speaker that's working over there, so... So if you're sitting in front of the drums and you don't have those voices kind of coming out of there, you get a really good drum solo going on over here. So, uh, so that's what's going on. If you think there's something's not quite right, that's what's not quite right. We're just, get, we're just thankful that this speaker over here works. So we'll just give God thanks for, uh, thanks for that. Well, I'm one of those pastors. Uh, I am uh, Rob Spikeser, one of the elders here at Sacred City. Elders are pastors. And my title is Pastor of Discipleship. And you may wonder, well, what exactly is that? What am I doing? 
Uh, well, what I'm doing is, is I'm working on processes, actually taking what some processes already have been established here and putting them in writing and kind of getting them kind of going. And so most recently, I've put together uh, the process uh, for deacons and put together four videos for uh, those who are aspiring to be deacons or even those who are just MC leaders because we desire for all of our MCs to have at least one uh, deacon in part of a uh, part of an MC, and so uh, that's one of the things that I'm doing. Another thing I'm being working on is I'm putting together some curriculum uh, with regards to uh, how to study, how to read, how to study uh, your Bible, and I want to do that uh, curriculum for MCs so that we can ha- get that going, because if you remember back in August when uh, Justin announced that I was coming on, uh, one of the things he said is primarily coming on for biblical literacy. And so women, I think that there is coming up here uh, October something, uh, 11th, 10th, somewhere right around there. I know that you're starting a, a uh, study, uh, How to Read the Bible. It's a six-week study. I'd really encourage you. It's a Monday night. I would really encourage you women, if you can, to come to that. It'll be in Cottage 11, and it'll be a, about an hour and a half or so, and it'll be an opportunity for you to learn how to read your Bible. If you've never really had that opportunity, never really had that experience of knowing uh, actually how to approach God's Word, this will be a help for you. It's six weeks. It ends right before, uh, conveniently so, the uh, holidays. And so please uh, take advantage uh, take advantage of that. Um, I'm also working on a uh, men's uh, event for November, and generally I'm taking on some biblical counseling uh, to kind of take some of that off of Justin's plates. And then uh, that's pretty much what occupies my time besides uh, obviously what I'm going to be doing here today, which is preaching. Um, I'm doing my normal oversight of four MCs. I'm in my own MC uh, fight club. Um, so uh, yeah, so here we go. Here we go. So if you are uh, joining uh, us for the first time today, uh, what we are doing, we're going through a series called Why Do We Do What We Do? And it is a series for us to, uh, to really think through what is happening here on a Sunday morning, that if you come next week, it's going to ex- happen exactly the same way, hopefully with another speaker on the other side of the room here. So we're just looking through that liturgy because that liturgy, what it's doing is it is shaping us. The liturgy is shaping us around the gospel. And ultimately, as we're shaped around the gospel, it is shaping us as individuals into the image of Jesus Christ. And so this morning, I would have you turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already done that, to uh, Matthew chapter 26, Matthew 26, which, which was just uh, read for you. Now, when we, when we read the Gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, we are reading uh, their good news, if you will, of a person of Jesus Christ, but we're reading it from their perspective, their individual perspective. Because each one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the author has a particular audience of which they are writing for. And so this is why that if you read through it, you'll, you'll discover that some of the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, some will include certain stories and exclude others, or they may all have a similar story, but they have different angles on it. They'll give different details. And the reason that they are doing this is that they are doing it for the aim that they have for that particular audience. 
And so today, as we are thinking about the Lord's Supper, I wanted us to turn to the Matthew's Gospel, because Matthew is adding in here, or giving us a story or an event that proceeds right before his, his description of this great gift called the Lord's Supper. And he's doing this for a very particular purpose. He's really stepping outside of uh, kind of the, what we consider a biographical, chronological order of things. And he's having us look back four days before the Lord's Supper to, at a particular event, the one we just had read for us. The woman who, uh, who has this beautiful perfume and does this beautiful act uh, for the person of Jesus Christ. And I believe he does this in order for us to understand uh, something about the Lord. Supper, and that is this that the Lord's Supper feeds our soul on the beauty of Jesus Christ. As we take the Lord's Supper, it's doing something, it's doing something to our souls, and it is this it is feeding our souls on the beauty of the person of Jesus Christ. So let's pray and ask God for his blessing on his word again, and then we will uh, get into this, and let me show you how that, this works itself out. So let's pray. Father, thank you. Uh, thank you for this day. Thank you for bringing us these particular people here. Thank you, Father, for your word. Uh, thank you that you give us your spirit. And so, Father, we would pray that you would help us to get our eyes off ourselves, eyes off of me, and Father, we pray that you'd help us to get our eyes upon the person of Jesus Christ. You'd help us to understand better why you gave us this Lord's Supper, why you gave us this rhythm that you want us to be participating on a regular basis, Father. So please work, please do what only you can do, and that is please minister to our hearts. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, the event here, begin, beginning in verse 6, is the event that happened, like I said earlier, seven days, or four, sorry, four days earlier, the preceding Saturday evening. It was a, a dinner in Bethany, two miles south of Jerusalem, and according to the Gospel of John, uh, the guests uh, not only included the disciples, but also Simon the leper, whom Jesus had previously healed, and then also Lazarus, the man in whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And then there's two other individuals that were present, and that is Martha, uh, kind of characteristically serving. Uh, Martha was there. Sisters, Mary, Mary was there as well, and they are the sisters of uh, Lazarus. And it was Mary who, in verse 7, she's the one, who, she's the woman who came up to him, look there, verse 7, with an alabaster flask of very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. Now, alabaster is a, a fine-grained gypsum, a soft mineral that can be shaped and formed and actually hollowed out into what we have here, a flask. Very, a flask of very expensive ointment, according uh, to our description here. Mark tells us in his gospel that the ointment costs about a year's wage, a year's salary. Now, we've got to stop there right now and just consider that for a minute. What would that cost you? Would you miss a year's salary if it was taken away from you? 
Or maybe another way of putting it is, what would you do if you had a gift, a gift was given to you of a year's salary, what would you do with that? What would you do with that salary? How much would you miss it? Well, normally, a bottle like the one that Mary is holding had a, uh, in her hand had, had a long, narrow uh, neck in which the top would be snapped off. In, in order for uh, this precious, expensive, aromatic perfume, in order for it to be uh, dispensed at a drop at a time. And then it would be corked. But Mary, she did something completely different, and that is that she broke off or broke this, this bottle with no intention of saving some for later. Matthew tells us that she poured it on Jesus' head, and there was enough there that it just it poured down and went down over his feet, gushed out. There was plenty for Jesus' head and feet. And John writes, the house was filled with the fragrance of this perfume. It was outrageous. It was, as we're about to read, objectively excessive. It was irrecoverable. Uh, meaning, when I asked you what would you do if you had received a gift that would be worth about a year's salary, uh, probably the, the nobler of you might say, well, hey, I would be giving it to my favorite nonprofit, or I might give it to my uh, a missionary friend, or I might give it to the church. But even in giving those gifts, what do we do? We give that gift and we can sit back and we begin to watch. I wonder how it's doing. I wonder what kind of impact that gift has had on those that they're ministering to. But in this case, Mary's gift was irrecoverable. She broke it, and there was, it was seemingly was going to be a very, a very short moment in time of which we were going to, she was going to be uh, uh, to enjoy it, and then it was going to be gone. They were going to smell it for an evening, but the next day it was gone. Irrecoverable. Seemingly, it was a fleeting gesture. A gesture of, of adoration. It was a purely sensory experience of sight and smell and sound. I mean, you can imagine the gasps that were going on when they rec some of them recognized, what, what's she doing? Notice in the passage, we never do get a hear from her. She, she never utters a word of why she has done what she's done. Rather, it was simply an act of adoration, of gratitude, devotion. She understood something about Jesus. And so out of this life of adoration, it made complete sense in her mind in the disciples' words, to waste this perfume on Jesus. But it didn't make sense to the disciples. This did not pass Dave Ramsey muster. As a matter of fact, they were not neutral or minorly annoyed. Look at Matthew's choice of words there. They were indignant. 
So that when Mary raised her eyes, she was expecting to get maybe some glances of appreciation, uh, glances of, oh, I get why you did what you did. She didn't get those kind of glances at all. Rather, she uh, got a scolding. They said, why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. See, from an earthly utilitarian point of view, this didn't make any sense. Think about the devastation of that moment on Mary's soul when she thought the disciples would get it and they didn't. And it it should have been a mutual joy. Rather, her soul was troubled by their accusations. And so Jesus comes to her rescue there in uh, verse 10. And this is what he says. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble this woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. She spoke the language of beauty. Think of it this way. Truth is kind of the language of the head, and you might be able to know what is true. Goodness is the language of the hands, and so we know what is morally good. But beauty... Beauty is a tough one because beauty is a, is a language of the affections. It's a language of the heart. It's not something that we can just simply conjure up. It's something that we have to, through truth, through goodness, uh, God does a work within our lives so that we understand what we have before us and we have this affection. And so this is what has happened to Mary. She has, she has an affection. She has a love for Jesus Christ that in her head, this made complete sense that she would take a year's worth salary of perfume and she would be excessive and outrageous and she would completely completely throw it out there. Irrecoverable. See, it was true, the ointment could have been sold for a pretty penny. It was a moral thought the disciples had. It could have been, it would have been good to help the poor. And Jesus was all about the poor. But they just didn't understand beauty. So you can have truth and you, have, you can have goodness, but if you don't have beauty, all you have is self-righteousness. So he explains, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. And Mary's act was an act of beauty, an expression of the affection for the beauty she had found in Jesus Christ. And so what seemed to be so fleeting was eternal. Uh, It was Mary in that room who understood the gospel. So that verse 13, this is what Jesus says. Truly I say to you, whoever, uh, wherever this gospel, well, what gospel? Well, it's the gospel that Jesus Christ was about to die on, uh, on, on their behalf. Wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Christ was her riches. And so it was reasonable for Mary to pour out this rich gift of love. On the other hand, 
it made equally sense, verse 14, for someone who had no love for Christ, one of the 12, whose name was Judas Iscariot, to go to the chief priest and say, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. See, 30 pieces of silver was ridiculously low. A small sum of money in comparison. It's like a night out at a good restaurant. For Judas, Jesus was a means to something else, which was apparent Jesus wasn't going to come through. And so he was prepared to cut his losses and run. And so we have to go, go back on our own hearts and ask ourselves, why am, I, why am I seeking truth? Why is it that I am working out uh, morality? Why am I wanting to do good? Is it only for what Jesus can get for me? Because if that's the case, you better cut, cut and run. Because that's self-righteousness. Simply knowing truth, doing truth. Or is Jesus your greatest love? So how do we get to Mary's place? How do we get to a place where we can, we can relate to Mary more than we can relate to the disciples? I think... If you're like me, as I, as I read through this, this introductory story here before the Lord's Supper, I got what the disciples were saying. I was like, yeah, they're right. Perhaps that was you too. So how do we get there? How, how do we get to the place where Mary understands the beauty of Christ in such a way that she would be willing to give up such wealth, such riches for this one in the way that she, she did? How do we get there? God has graciously given us a supper, the Lord's Supper a weekly rhythm to move our hearts to love Jesus Christ, to love his beauty. The Lord's Supper feeds our soul on the beauty of Jesus Christ. Well, what do I mean by the Lord's Supper feeds our soul? So over the centuries, the church has... Um, has divided over what Jesus meant by his words in verses uh, 26 and 27, uh, which go like this. Um, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant. Now, clearly, as he is there before them, his physical body and the bread are distinct objects. Uh, neither has changed into the other or took on any kind of physical properties or characteristics of one or, or the other. And we know a quick reflection in the New Testament. Jesus was one who often used symbolism, uh, symbolic language. He called himself a temple. He spoke in the necessity of being born again. He spoke of the fact that he was like water. Uh, he, calls on the, uh, he calls the will of the Father 
his own food. Uh, and the list goes on of all these symbolic language that Jesus used. And so he is using symbolic language here. The bread does not transform into the body. The cup does not transform into his blood. And yet there is reason that he chose to refer to his body as the bread and to refer to his blood uh, as the cup. There is something truly nourishing about taking the bread and the cup. And it goes beyond just remembering it with our heads. There is a work that God is doing within your heart as you come forward here. He is doing a spiritual work. He is nourishing you in ways that I can't fully understand. But he's nourishing you on his beauty. The Lord's Supper feeds our soul. So what are we fed upon? Well, first of all, his body and blood feeds our soul with the beauty of his forgiveness. With the beauty of his forgiveness. Look at verses 17 through 19. Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and said, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, well, go into the city to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and they prepared the Passover. <laughs> the Passover was an annual uh, celebration to remind God's people what God had done for them while they were in slavery there in Egypt. And part of the reminder was, is that they would take in that, in that, that first Passover, they took in a lamb for a couple of days, and then they spilt the blood of the lamb, and they took the blood, and they put it over uh, that crossbeam there on their doorpost so that the death angel would pass over them. Blood was shed, life was given, so death would be passed over them. So that we come to Jesus' day and they're doing the preparation for the Passover. It was believed there was thousands upon thousands of lambs that were being shed. The blood was being shed there on the temple mount, there at the altar. So the blood would actually be going out outside the temple mounts. John tells us it was Peter and James John, who were the ones who were uh, preparing for uh, this Passover, and so they would have, I'm sorry, it's just Peter and John, and they would take the preparations, and they would, on behalf of the other disciples, they went to the Temple Mount. They saw all this blood being shed. This is the preparation that they were, part of the preparation that they were doing. And so it was in this, within this celebration that Jesus then breaks tradition, Verse 20, when it was evening, he reclined the table with the twelve, and as they were eating, he said, truly, So what they're going to hear is something, a solemn truth that they can count on. Truth that is going to suck the festive nature of the evening. One of you will betray me. When I think about some of my best meals, um, probably the top five, was at Village Inn. <laughs> yeah. My wife and I, we had three boys kind of in succession, kind of like you guys, not a lot of break. <laughs> and we got to a point where our, th our third one was able to take a bottle, and so on our anniversary, we, we got married in December, so it's the winter. On our anniversary, we were going to have a weekend uh, to ourselves. We were going to go to a condo in 
in the mountains. I lived in Colorado at the time. And so to get there, we had to go over the Continental Divide and actually through the Continental Divide, Eisenhower Tunnel. And so as we're driving up in the snowy, it's kind of bad weather, snowy weather, uh, we're driving up and all of a sudden our car, um, it, um, the engine blows <laughs> um, through a rod. Pulled over, fun story. Uh, we're close, to the, we're close to the tunnel, and this big snow plow that they have there right at the, the Continental Divide, huge snow plow comes pulling around, sees us, you know, on the side of the road, pulls up. Probably a four-foot-eight woman jumped out of this thing. It was wonderful. She, she said, come on in, get in here, I'll take you up to the tunnel. The tunnel has got a whole complex inside there, phone, phone, oh yeah, by the way, pre-cell pre phone. I don't know how, you know, how did we ever do this? Pre-cell phone. So we called the tow truck, we waited there. So this happened like late after, late morning, and so we're waiting, we get the tow truck, the tow truck comes, gets our car, we, you know, it brings our car to us, we get in his tow truck. By the time all of this has occurred, we come down to the bottom of the mountain, we get the last hotel room there in Silverthorne because it's a ski season. And so we get, to, we get this last room in, in all of Silverthorne, you know, like a super six or whatever those things are called. And uh, so we're in there. And by this point, it's probably eight o'clock. We haven't eaten. Don't have a car, so we got to walk out into the snow. We got to walk while it's snowing down to us. We go over and there's, there's a village inn. Oh, you know. Uh, we go into the village inn and they have those, those, um, uh, uh, what are they, the black pans, what are those called? Um, yeah, there we go, skillet, thank you, skillet. Skillet, we got the skillet, and it's, they have those, I don't know if they still have them, I haven't been there in a long time. They, they have a skillet thing, and uh, all kinds of eggs, and wonderful, all this wonderful stuff in it. Oh my goodness. Hot coffee, it was the best meal I think I have ever had. One of the best meals, really, one of the top five. See, my appetite was prepared. <laughs> I... It was good stuff. Well, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's creating an appetite. He's creating an appetite for forgiveness. By saying this, blowing the party, by saying, oh, by the way, one of you will betray me. Now consider how he does this. Look what he says. Jesus says, one of you. He is letting Judas in on the fact that he knows his evil heart and he knows the temptation that Judas is going through right now. He's attempting to create an appetite in Judas' life for forgiveness. But now notice how he says it. One of you, plural. Jesus is moving them all to examine their hearts which is what all the other disciples were doing. They say, is it I, Lord? See, each one is recognizing that they are capable of betraying Jesus. See, what Matthew has done is he has set us up with, with Mary's story. He set them up, he set us up, and he has set us up to ask the question, do I really love Jesus? To the degree that we find ourselves agreeing with the disciples' assessment of Mary's actions is the degree that we are capable of betraying Jesus. I mean, how often have you betrayed Christ for less than a night out at a good restaurant? How 
And don't miss how Jesus is persistent with the most obstinate. Look at verses 23 and 24. He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The son of man goes, it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. See, this is Jesus' second appeal to Judas to turn from self and repent Jesus knew his descent into death was divinely prophesied by Scripture. But this didn't lead Jesus to believe that human agents were exempt of their own responsibility. Woe to that man. He's saying to Judas, Judas, it would have been better if you had not been born than for you to have been born to know me and to hear me and to feel the conviction and to reject me, to betray me. And it is still true today. It would be better for you to have not to been born than to hear about the person of Jesus Christ and what he has done on the cross for you and to reject him. And betray him. What did Judas do with Jesus' appeal? Verse 25. Judas would betray him, who would betray him, answered, It is I, is it I, Rabbi? And he said to him, You have said so. He rejected Jesus as Lord. See, did you catch that distinction there? The disciple said, is it I, is it I, Lord? Judah said, is it I, Rabbi? See, Jesus Christ is more than a good teacher. He is Lord. The Gospel of John tells us that after this, Jesus said to Judas, what you are going to do, do quickly. And he immediately went out. Judas immediately went out, and it was night. Judas rejected the beauty of his forgiveness. But for the true followers of Jesus Christ, it was a moment, it was a moment to examine their hearts. And so to enjoy the riches of Christ's forgiveness requires us to examine our souls. So as we think about this thing called the Lord's Supper, he wants to create an appetite. And so he creates an appetite by giving us a liturgy. And the, the liturgy that we have here all the way through, we're seeing the gospel. We're beginning to see ourselves for who we are in comparison to who God is. And ultimately, it comes right after the message. And right after the message, uh, you Hopefully the Holy Spirit is working through that message and convicting you of sin. And in the conviction of your sin, your appetite is good and ready. And he says, now, now that it's good and ready, repent, confess this, and I will give you forgiveness. And so this meal is an opportunity to be reminded again, a renewal, if you will, of the forgiveness that God promises to all who will trust in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. This is beautiful. <laughs> this is why you throw everything away. Embrace Christ. Lord's Supper feeds our soul in the beauty of Christ's forgiveness. Secondly, our soul is, uh, is fed with the beauty of communion with one another. See, look at those three words in verse, uh, verse 27. All of you. Um, 
He didn't just say drink of it. No, he said, drink of it, all of you. Again, consider who was there four days earlier in Bethany. You have Simon the leper. Before meeting Jesus Christ, here's an individual who's on the fringes of society, an outcast. Morally, he was questionable within their uninformed framework of the consequences of sin. Economically, he was on the bottom. Most likely, he was a beggar. And then you have Lazarus and his sisters, Mary and Martha, obviously wealthy, in the center of society, lots of connections with friends and their neighbors, with Simon, the leper. And Simon is the one who's hosting this party for Jesus. No other place in the world would you find these two people in the same room apart from their common experience of being touched by the good news of Jesus Christ. Or think of the disciples. You have a religious fanatic, Simon the Zealot, whose sole purpose before Jesus was to overthrow Rome. And he's in the same room on this Lord's Supper with Matthew, whose former purpose was to collect taxes for Rome. You have James and John who days earlier were secretly lobbying Jesus for the best, uh, best positions in the kingdom to the ire of the other disciples. And Jesus invites them all to set aside all those lesser things and feed on him. Think about this room. We come from various stages of life. We come from various backgrounds of privilege. Some of you come from privileged homes and some of you had no privilege. We come from various educational experiences. Some of you, there's some here who have never crossed a stage to get any kind of diploma. And there's others here who have their doctorates. We come with all sorts of stories. And then consider all the opinions sitting in this room. We differ here on gun control. We differ on masks or no masks, vaccines and no vaccines. We differ on the degree of government intervention. We differ on diets. We differ on our view of health care. I want you to watch something. In a few minutes, Jesus Christ has given us a rhythm. And it's a rhythm that says, feed on me. Set aside all those lesser things. And feed on the beauty of our communion together. We've all been touched by the good news of Jesus Christ. We put all those things aside and we're gonna visibly watch ourselves come down here and eat together. Ooh. Feed on the riches, on the beauty of this communion that he has given to us. Oh, now our hearts are getting a little warmer. I think I'll throw all everything away. I think I'll take that flask of alabaster and break it. <laughs> Three. Our soul is fed with the beauty of new promises. See, look what he says there about his blood. He says, this is the blood of my covenant. And Luke tells us this is the new covenant. Now, we can think of a covenant as a partnership, a kind of a partnership with God. And in this partnership, uh, God makes some promises. And then out of that uh, partnership, there's these ones who are receiving those promises. He says, you've got some commitments that you need to, you need to make. 
And the covenants in the Bible, they, they were ratified by the shedding of blood. Really important covenants shed by blood, ratified by shedding of the blood. And it was basically saying this is a serious thing that you are doing so that if you fail to keep your promises or you fail to keep your commitments, you die. So God made a covenant with his people at Mount Sinai with a number of promises. But all of those promises could be kind of summed up into one big promise, and that promise was that I will be your God. And God's people said, great, I will, we will take the commitments. What are the commitments? And he said, well, basically we can sum it up in ten. Ten commandments. Great, we'll do it. Shed some blood. We'll die if we must. We will be obedient. God says, I'll keep the promises. Couldn't get out, couldn't get out a day. Couldn't make it a day. And already God's people were breaking their commitments. Generation after generation failed, and when it seemed that God had finally given up on his people, he removed them from their land. They were scattered among the nations. They were in exile. It seemed like there was no hope, and this is what he said, Ezekiel chapter 34, 11 through 16. Ezekiel, there it is, all right. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land and they will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountains mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land, and there they shall lie down in good grazing land, and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, I will bring back the stray, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak." And then he goes over and makes a covenant, uh, Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 24 through 28. So you turn in your Bibles just a few pages over, conveniently so, and this is what he says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land and I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses cleannesses, and from, uh, from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the a heart of stone from your, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey all the rules. So Jesus says, John 10, I'm the good shepherd. And then he says, I will lay down my life for the sheep. This is a new covenant. The demand of the old covenant still stands. Obedience. Perfect obedience. Jesus fulfilled that demand on our behalf. He then took on the seriousness of our failures and he died. And in his death, he shed his blood, ratifying a new covenant with these promises 
For all those who trust in his sacrifice, the Father promises a new heart. And he promises to give his spirit to be in that heart. That's the new covenant. Have you ever wandered away? Have you wandered away this past week from the shepherd? <laughs> Have you betrayed him in your words and actions and thoughts? Good news. There's some new promises. Jesus died for that. And he shed his blood. Your heart is good. The spirit hasn't left you. It still remains. When you take this, you're feeding on that reality. Renewal of that covenant week after week. The beauty of these promises. Number four, last one. Look at verse 29. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Our soul is fed with the beauty of God's reigning story. Fed with the beauty of God's reigning story. The Lord's Supper, first of all, looks back to the cross, and then the Lord's Supper looks at the present with his presence as we eat, but the Lord's Supper also has a future orientation about it. Whatever God ordains for you this next week, whatever your greatest fear might be, even if that fear he ordains for you to have to face death itself, the Lord's Supper today feeds our soul with this promise. There is a party coming. The Lord's Supper turns last day language which we're living in the last days and all the difficulties and trials and troubles that comes with living in the last days, the Lord's Supper turns the last day's language into a happy tune and the tune goes like this. Compliments of Isaiah. Isaiah, here he says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, a veil that is spread over all nations. Well, what is that? He will swallow up, Isaiah sings, he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away all tears from all their faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. When we eat this, we feed on that reality. So that as we step into the future, tomorrow, whatever God has, whatever fears that we might have tomorrow, we have a story that reigns over those fears. God himself reigns. Now listen to the missional piece to Jesus' words here. He says, I won't drink of this until I drink it new with you. In other words, Jesus says, I don't want to enjoy this wine without you.
If you've not trusted him as Lord and Savior, he's waiting for you. Maybe you don't understand much this morning about the gospel, but let me tell you this. All you need to understand is this, that you need a Savior. And Jesus Christ will be that Savior for you. Tell him you want him. He's waiting for you. He doesn't want you to miss the party. Sheep. (laughs) Sheep. Let's come down. Feed again on the beauty of his forgiveness. Feed again on the communion that we have with one another. Feed again on the promises. They're so new. And feed again on his reigning story. Let's apply this right now. Father, thank you so much. What a rhythm. Who would have come up with this one? But you are a great God. So we thank you, Father, as we take the Lord's Supper that we're feeding upon your Son, his body and his blood, given and shed for us, that we might enjoy once again you. Move our hearts, Father. Cause us to love you more and more. Stir our affections so that this story that Mary did, Father, that we would get it. It would make sense to us, we pray. We thank you. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.